0: Hello and welcome, friends, family, and of course, enemies alike, to episode 156 of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. Throughout all of these even-numbered episodes, we have been going through The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. And alas, we have finally arrived upon its conclusion with the latter half of Chapter 9 being read today. A little somber of a moment for me, if I'm being honest. But here's where we are in the story. Gatsby, of course, is dead, so spoiler. Um, and Nick is in charge of kind of running the back end of funeral proceedings, making sure people show up, and uh, just being... A good host to those that do attend Gatsby's real father has arrived so proud of his son except Nick is having some trouble contacting Gatsby's quote-unquote friends as well as getting them to attend when he does contact them so he's in a little bit of a bind um at this point in the story so let us continue reading the conclusion of the great gadsby by f scott fitzgerald content warning the following reading contains profanity when i left his office the sky had turned dark and i got back to west egg in a drizzle after changing my clothes i went next door and found mr Gats walking up and down excitedly in the hall his pride in his son and in his son's possessions was continually increasing, and now he had something to show me. Jimmy sent me this picture. He took out his wallet with trembling fingers. Look, there. It was a photograph of the house, cracked in the corners and dirty with many hands. He pointed out every detail to me eagerly. Look, there. And then sought admiration from my eyes. He had shown it so often that I think it was more real to him now than the house itself. Jimmy sent it to me. I think it's a very pretty picture. It shows up well. Very well. Had you seen him lately? Uh, He'd come out to see me two years ago and bought me the house I live in now. of course, we was broke when he ran off from home but I see now that there was a reason for it. He knew he had a big future in front of him, and ever since he made a success, he was very generous with me. He seemed reluctant to put away the picture, held it for another minute, lingeringly, before my eyes. Then, he returned the wallet and pulled from his pocket a ragged old copy of a book called Hopalong Cassidy. Look, Here! This is the book he had when he was a boy. It just shows you. He opened it at the back cover and turned it around for me to see. On the last flyleaf was printed the word, Schedule, and the date, September 12th, 1906. And underneath, Rise from Bed, 6 a.m. Dumbbell Exercise and Wall Scaling, 615-630. Steady electricity, etc. 7.15 to 8.15. Work. 8.30 to 4.30 p.m. Baseball and sports. 4.30 to 5. Practice elocution, poise, and how to attain it. 5 to 6. Steady needed inventions. 7 to 9. General resolves. No wasting time at Shafter's, or a name indecipherable. No more smoking or chewing. Bathe every other day. Read one improving book or magazine per week. Save five dollars, crossed out, three dollars per week. Be better to parents. I came across this book by accident, said the old man. It just shows you, don't it? It just shows you. Jimmy was bound to get ahead. He always had some resolves like this or something. Do you know what he's got about improving his mind? He was always great for that. (laughs) He told me I ate like a hog once, and I beat him for it. He was reluctant to close the book, reading each item aloud and then looking eagerly at me. I think he rather expected me to copy down the list for my own use. A little before three, the Lutheran minister arrived from Flushing, and I began to look involuntarily out the windows for other cars. So did Gadsby's father. And as the time passed and the servants came in and stood waiting in the hall, his eyes began to blink anxiously, and he spoke of the rain in a worried, uncertain way. The minister glanced several times at his watch, so I took him aside and asked him to wait for a half an hour. But it wasn't any use. Nobody came. About five o'clock, our procession of three cars reached the cemetery and stopped in a thick drizzle beside the gate. First, a motor hearse, horribly black and wet. Then, Mr. Gatz and the minister and me, in the limousine. And a little later, four or five servants and the postman from West Egg, in Gatsby's station wagon, all wet to the skin. As we started through the gate into the cemetery, I heard a car stop, and then the sound of someone splashing after us over the soggy ground. I looked around. It was the man with owl-dyed glasses whom I'd found marveling over Gatsby's books in the library one night three months before. I'd never seen him since then. I don't know how he knew about the funeral, or even his name. The rain poured down his thick glasses, and he took them off and wiped them to see the protecting canvas unrolled from Gadsby's grave. I tried to think about Gadsby then for a moment, but he was already too far away, and I could only remember, without resentment, that Daisy hadn't sent a message or a flower. "'Dimly, I heard someone murmur, "'Blessed are the dead that the rain falls on.' "'And then the owl-eyed man said, "'Amen to that!' in a brave voice. "'We straggled down quickly through the rain to the cars. "'Owl-eyes spoke to me by the gate. "'I couldn't get to the house,' he remarked. "'Neither could anybody else. "'Go on!' He started. Why, my God, they used to go there by the hundreds. He took off his glasses and wiped them again outside and in. The poor son of a bitch, he said. One of my most vivid memories is of coming back west from prep school and later from college at Christmas time. Those who went farther than Chicago would gather in the old dim Union Station at six o'clock of a December evening with a few Chicago friends, already caught up in their own holiday gaieties, to bid them a hasty goodbye. I remember the fur coats of the girls returning from Miss This or That's, and the chatter of frozen breath, and the hands waving overhead as we caught sight of old acquaintances, and the matchings of invitations. Are you going to the Ordways, the Herseys, the Schultzes?" And the long green tickets clasped tight in our gloved hands. And last, the murky yellow cars of the Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Paul Railroad, looking cheerful as Christmas itself on the tracks beside the gate. When we pulled out into the winter night, and the real snow, our snow, began to stretch out beside us and twinkle against the windows, and the dim lights of small Wisconsin stations moved by, a sharp wild brace came suddenly into the air. We drew in deep breaths of it as we walked back from dinner through the cold vestibules, unutterably aware of our identity with this country, for one strange hour before we melted indistinguishably into it again. That's my Middle West. Not the wheat, or the prairies, or the lost Swede towns, but the thrilling returning trains of my youth, and the street lamps and sleigh bells in the frosty dark, and the shadows of holly wreaths thrown by lighted windows on the snow. I'm a part of that, a little solemn with the feel of those long winters, a little complacent from growing up in the Caraway House in a city where dwellings are still called, through decades, by a family's name. I see now that this has been the story of the West. After all, Tom and Gadsby, Daisy and Jordan and I, were all Westerners, and perhaps we possessed some deficiency in common, which made us subtly unadaptable to Eastern life. Even when the East excited me most, even when I was most keenly aware of its superiority to the bored, sprawling, swollen towns beyond the Ohio, with their indeterminable inquisitions which spared only the children in the very old, even then it had always for me a quality of distortion. West Egg, especially, still figures in my more fantastic dreams. I see it as a night scene by El Greco. A hundred houses, at once conventional and grotesque, crouching under a sullen, overhanging sky and a lusterless moon. In the foreground, four solemn men in dress suits are walking along the sidewalk with a stretcher, on which lies a drunken woman in a white evening dress. Her hand, which dangles over the side, sparkles cold with jewels. Gravely, the men turn in at a house. The wrong house. But no one knows the woman's name, and no one cares. After Gatsby's death, the East was haunted for me like that, distorted beyond my eye's power of correction. So when the blue smoke of brittle leaves was in the air, and the wind blew the wet laundry stiff on the line, I decided to come back home. There was one thing that had to be done before I left, an awkward, unpleasant thing that perhaps had better have been let alone. But I wanted to leave things in order, and not just trust that obliging and indifferent sea to sweep my refuse away. I saw Jordan Baker and talked over and around what had happened to us together, and what had happened afterward to me. And she lay perfectly still, listening in a big chair. She was dressed to play golf, and I remember thinking she looked like a good illustration. Her chin, raised a little jauntily. Her hair, the color of an autumn leaf. Her face, the same brown tint as the fingerless glove on her knee. When I had finished, she told me without comment that she was engaged to another man. I doubted that, though there were several she could have married at a nod of her head. But I pretended to be surprised. For just a minute I wondered if I wasn't making a mistake. Then I thought it all over again quickly, and got up to say goodbye. Nevertheless, you did throw me over, said Jordan suddenly. You threw me over on the telephone. I don't give a damn about you now, but it was a new experience for me, and I felt a little dizzy for a while. We shook hands. Oh, and do you remember, she added, a conversation we had once about driving a car? Why, not exactly. You said a bad driver was only safe until she met another bad driver? Well, I met another bad driver, didn't I? I mean, it was careless of me to make such a wrong guess. I thought you were rather an honest, straightforward person. I thought it was your secret pride. I'm 30, I said. I'm five years too old to lie to myself and call it honor. She didn't answer. Angry and half in love with her, and tremendously sorry, I turned away. One afternoon, late in October, I saw Tom Buchanan. He was walking ahead of me along Fifth Avenue in his alert, aggressive way, his hands out a little from his body as if to fight off interference, his head moving sharply here and there, adapting itself to his restless eyes. Just as I slowed up to avoid overtaking him, he stopped and began frowning into the windows of a jewelry store. Suddenly he saw me and walked back, holding out his hand. What's the matter, Nick? Do you object to shaking hands with me? Yes, you know what I think of you. You're crazy, Nick, he said quickly. Crazy as hell, I don't know what's the matter with you. Tom, I inquired, what did you say to Wilson that afternoon? He stared at me without a word and I knew I had guessed right about those missing hours. I started to turn away, but he took a step after me and grabbed my arm. I I told him the truth, he said. He came to the door while we were getting ready to leave, and when I sent down word that we weren't in, he tried to force his way upstairs. He was crazy enough to kill me if I hadn't told him who owned the car. His hand was on a revolver in his pocket every minute he was in the house. He broke off defiantly. What if I did tell him? That fellow had it coming to him. He threw dust into your eyes, just like he did in Daisy's. But he was a tough one. He ran over Myrtle like you'd run over a dog, and never even stopped his car. There wasn't nothing I could say, except the one unutterable fact that it wasn't true. And if you think I didn't have my share of suffering, look here, when I went to give up that flat and saw that damn box of dog biscuits sitting there on the sideboard, I sat down and cried like a baby. By God, it was awful. I couldn't forgive him or like him, but I saw that what he had done was to him entirely justified. It was all very careless and confused. They were careless people, Tom and Daisy. They smashed up things and creatures, and then retreated back into their money or their vast carelessness or whatever it was that kept them together, and let other people clean up the mess they had made. I shook hands with him. It seemed silly not to, for I felt suddenly as though I were talking to a child. Then... He went into the jewelry store to buy a pearl necklace or perhaps only a pair of cuff buttons, rid of my provincial squeamishness forever. Gatsby's house was still empty when I left. The grass on his lawn had grown as long as mine. One of the taxi drivers in the village never took a fare past the entrance gate without stopping for a minute and pointing inside. Perhaps it was he who drove Daisy and Gatsby over to East Egg the night of the accident, and perhaps he had made a story about it all his own. I didn't want to hear it, and I avoided him when I got off the train. I spent my Saturday nights in New York because those gleaming, dazzling parties of his were with me so vividly that I could still hear the music and the laughter, faint and incessant, from his garden, and the cars going up and down his drive. One night, I did hear a material car there, and saw its lights stop at his front steps. But I didn't investigate. Probably it was some final guest who had been away at the ends of the earth and didn't know that the party was over. On the last night, with my trunk packed and my car sold to the grocer, I went over and looked at that huge, incoherent failure of a house once more. On the white steps, an obscene word, scrawled by some boy with a piece of brick, stood out clearly in the moonlight, and I erased it, drawing my shoe raspingly along the stone. Then I wandered down to the beach and sprawled out on the sand. Most of the big shore places were closed now, and there were hardly any lights except the shadowy moving glow of a ferryboat across the Sound. And as the moon rose higher the inner central houses began to melt away until gradually i became aware of the old island here that flowered once for dutch sailors eyes a fresh green breast of the new world its vanished trees the trees that had made way for gadsby's houses had once pandered in whispers to the last and greatest of all human dreams for a transitory, enchanted moment, man must have held his breath in the presence of this continent. Compelled into an aesthetic contemplation he neither understood nor desired. Face to face, for the last time in history, was something commensurate to his capacity for wonder. And as I sat there brooding on the old, unknown world... I thought of Gatsby's wonder when he first picked out that green light at the end of Daisy's dock. He had come a long way to this blue lawn, and his dream must have seemed so close that he could hardly fail to grasp it. He did not know that it was already behind him, somewhere back in that vast obscurity beyond the city, where the dark fields of the Republic rolled on under the night. Gatsby believed in the green light, the orgastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms further, and one fine morning. So we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. End of The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald Wow. I mean, I guess you really don't know who your friends are until you're dead. But I mean, at that point, it doesn't really matter. But I mean, golly. Uh, his father, maybe I'm being a little too harsh, but I'm kind of surprised that his father bothered to show up to this funeral all points considering of what we had just experienced uh Gatsby's alcohol smuggler didn't show up Gatsby's friends that he hosted dozens of parties for gave them free alcohol you think it'd be associated with positive memories and there'd be some drunkard that would show up to the funeral and be like oh yeah Gatsby was a great fellow he provided so many good memories for me, you know? And, like, had a good time. No, no, nobody like that. Everybody abandoned him. What is very curious is we've got a man who shows up in one other chapter, in Chapter 2. Who a man Nick affectionately refers to as Owl Eyes. Nick doesn't even bother to ask him what his real name is. Even at the funeral, he just continues to refer to him as Owl Eyes. But what makes Owl Eyes a very interesting character, and I think why he shows up to the funeral, because he's one of the few people at Gatsby's parties who saw past all of the the walls and the, the masquerades that Gatsby was putting up for himself. I mean, he points out to Nick at the party, he's like, Look at this guy. Get a load of him. You know, look at his books. They aren't even cut. You know, and all these things. But like, Owl Eyes understood Gatsby on a different level. He saw directly into Gatsby's soul. Kind of. And what's more important, he accepted Gatsby regardless of what he saw. And I think... That is what makes Owl Eyes a truer friend than Daisy, than Jordan, than, dare I say, even Nick to some degree. Owl Eyes valued his friendship with Gatsby, not on what he could get out of Gatsby, but on who Gatsby was as a person. He, I I honestly think the guy empathized with Gatsby a little bit. Because I think Owl Eyes was himself putting up a front. And he was just like... Khan recognizes Khan, you know? (laughs) Like, they understood each other on that level. And I think if Gatsby had bothered to be present at his own parties instead of longingly looking after a lost love, who knows? Owl Eyes and Gatsby would have been chums. And we would have seen more of them. That was curious. But let's then go back to Gatsby's inner circle, or square, if you want to call it that, because there's four of them. You got Nick, of course. You got Tom, kind of. Daisy and Jordan. These four people are the inner sanctum Of Gatsby's friends. And. None of them show up. Except for Nick. Which is predictable. Because he's the one telling this entire story. And I think. Nick puts it very well. After he's done with his long drawn out conversation with Tom. Where he's like. These people. So careless. So reckless. They make messes. And just leave them alone, flee the scene, and let other people clean up their own messes for them. Nick, sadly, was one of those victims. And, um, you know, Jordan is upset with Nick because he broke up with her over the phone, which, admittedly, kind of a jerk move, but Nick was going through a lot at that present moment. He didn't really have the the right mindset in that time had just died and he was just kind of like I I don't know what I'm doing with this lady I just need to break it off right now and so she's like oh, you you made yourself out to be say that you were a man of honor and dignity <laughs> and Nick's just like lady I'm 5 years too old to be saying stuff like that. That was immature 25-year-old Nick that would have said something like that. But I'm 30. I got nothing to lose here. And uh, I just love his frankness in that moment. Um, but she could have attended the funeral. She clearly had a past with Gadsby, as we heard in different stories between um, that happened between her and Nick. And so she could have attended... And just been off at a distance away from Nick? I don't know. Maybe that could have worked. I think that would have been completely respectable and acceptable in this day and age. But nope, she's just like, eh, don't really care about him. I got what I wanted, and now I'm off to the next guy. Really weird. And then you got Tom. He's like, hey, man, like, what's up? What gives? Like, you're not even shaking my hand? Like, you don't even care about me? And Nick's like, Tom, wh- what did you say to Wilson? Do you have no loyalty, man? And Tom's like, oh, well, he-, he was coming at me with a gun, and, you know, I was protecting me and my family, and, you know, what was I supposed to say, you know? Gatsby fooled you. He pulled the wool over your eyes, too. He ran over Myrtle. Plowed her through with no remorse. And, you know, you're just like, Wow, Tom. Wow. But then you're just like, We know the snake behind Tom's lies. It was Daisy in the flesh. She probably told him on the night of Myrtle's murder that... It was Gadsby who was behind the wheel of the car. And that's how they all bonded with one another. But I'm not going to go on that thyroid about Daisy. Because we all know how much of a snake she truly was. Very materialistic. Didn't really care for Gadsby in the end. Was just using him for her own devices. And so, yeah, that's all I'm going to say on Daisy. So I've covered everybody in this this square of friends. None of them. None of them really cared, except for Nick. So, in conclusion, I mean, really, this was, if anything, a cautionary tale, right? About where your priorities and values should lie when attempting to pursue the American dream. It is unattainable. We should not be living in the past. We should be living in the present, where we are. Take a look at your friends, at the family you currently have. Don't look to the past. You can learn from your past, but you can't live in it. And I think what Gatsby tells us through this this tale, and I I think why Nick chose to weave this tale for us is to remind us what makes Gadsby so great. He's a a shining emblem, a, a blazing example of somebody who had it. He had the wealth. He had the notoriety. But he was never happy. And he never could be happy. He was ignoring... The people that were present in his life. Owl Eyes and him could have been pals. Okay? He and Nick could have gone off on their seaplane expeditions and journeys. Gatsby probably could have found somebody at one of his parties. Or taken the time to invest in a more permanent, lasting relationship. Daisy's married, dude. She made her choice. Her priorities are clear. Okay, I'm not going to get on her again. <sighs> I think this was a fitting conclusion. Um, we have done it. We've actually completed a book. I think this is the first book <laughs> that I've read cover to cover and finished. <laughs> I mean, on this podcast, that is. So, Weird Milestone on a podcast entitled Reading Cadence. And so, um, I don't know. I feel like there needs to be a celebration or something for that. Episode 156. That's gotta be the longest detour that anyone has ever taken on a podcast to complete something. But here we are. Thank you all so much for listening to another episode of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. Next week, we will be continuing to read through the thrilling conclusion of The Adventure of the Lion's Mane. But until then, as they say in show business, legitimately, that's all F. Scott Fitzgerald.